0: A story about death, born out of desperation and love. This is Chapter 5 of Author Talks with Lisa T. And coming up, debut author Nina Simon shares how her murder mystery served as a distraction when death came knocking at the door. So your book features a grandmother, mother, granddaughter, crime-solving trio who worked to solve a murder in a coastal California town. But before we jump into all that, I think people really need to know the backstory of this story to really appreciate the characters and their relationships. So can you share the story with us about how Mother Daughter Murder Night came to be?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, I never expected to write a novel. It was not on my to-do list. I always loved... Writing as part of my learning and exploring in my past life, working in nonprofits, but it was always nonfiction, very much on the side. And I came to fiction as a reader, but not as a writer. Um, and then three years ago, I got a phone call that changed my life. My mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was in her brain, it was in her lungs, it was all over her body. And it was just one of those wake-up call moments where I rushed to be with her, I quit my job, and really reorganized my life to be able to support my mom. And, you know, a lot of my friends at the time said, you will never regret this time you're spending with your mom. And they were absolutely right. But at the same time, what they didn't say is that that time we spent together It's not always fun. It's certainly not easy. And it felt like cancer was taking over our world. Um, So we were very lucky to be together, but it was a very stressful and scary time. My mom and I have always loved murder mysteries. And so during this time, I started pulling old favorites off the shelf to read with her again. And then one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, what if I tried writing a murder mystery with someone like you as the lead detective? And that's where mother-daughter murder night was born you know i would write scenes sitting on my mom's bed in the morning while she slept and my only thought lisa was about writing a story of these three women um who you know were based very slightly on our lives and just trying to think what will make my mom smile what will make her laugh and then she'd wake up i'd slide the laptop over to her to read i'd go make her breakfast and i'd come back and we'd talk about it And in this way, we went about this um, brainstorming together, talking about the story together. And it was an escape and a source of comfort and joy for us to write this book. And I'm just so honored and really surprised that here we are talking now, three years later, my mom is doing really well, which is incredible. And I'm now hearing from so many readers for whom reading the book is bringing them the kind of comfort and joy and escape that we found while I was writing it.
0: So how does mom feel now that this
1: book that you wrote during this time is landed on the New York Times bestseller list? (laughs) So excited, so proud. You know, I think that... Um, We shared the writing of it very intimately, but really every step of the way through the publishing journey, she was always my first phone call when I got an agent, when we signed a deal with a publisher, you know, all of the great news that has come since the launch. She and I were together for the launch um, and we took questions together. So it's just continued to be a source of joy for us. And, you know, I'm really inspired by, um, there's something that the poet Donald Hall wrote After his wife, Jane Kenyon, who was also an incredible poet, died, he said, you know, when you're in a love relationship with somebody, you often spend a lot of your time focused on a third thing. You don't spend all your time gazing into each other's eyes. You spend your time talking about an art form you love or a sports team or a pet or a kid and I feel like for us, Mother Daughter Murder Night has become this beautiful third thing that we brought into our lives at a time when something else, cancer in our case, was threatening to take over all our conversations. So it still is just such a source of joy. It feels like, you know, something we brought into the world together and we get to keep celebrating it together.
0: I, when I tell people I picked up this book and I read it, I feel that if if you're somebody who likes that show Only Murders in the Building Or you're a Murder, She Wrote fan that that that's the kind of vibes that I get because you have these three people who are thrown into a murder because it just happens to happen in their world. It's in a coastal town. And, you know, now that you've kind of established where the story is coming from, tell us a little bit more about what we can expect when we pick it up.
1: Yeah, so just as you're saying, I really think of this as a big hearted mystery. It's both a traditional murder story, but also and a solving, you know, amateur sleuth solving the story. But it's also really a family drama about these three generations of women who are all very strong in different ways, negotiating and learning how to love and live with each other, um, even though they still are so independent from each other. And so um, there's no question that. You know, there is humor in it alongside the murder. And, you know, for me as a reader, I think it's so funny to um, turn to murder mysteries for comfort, but it's absolutely what I do. And I think it's because in a story like this, you know, a crime is committed in the beginning. There's a dead body in the water, in this case, in this uh, marine preserve in coastal California called Elkhorn Slough. And then over the course of the book, These three women are learning how to work together and figuring out what happened and solving this um, puzzle, but also, you know, in their own way, sort of bringing justice and healing the rift caused by the crime. Um, And, you know, I like to think about the idea of the murder mystery as kind of a modern morality play because we are confronted in our lives with so many things that we can't understand. Certainly, you know, cancer for my family you know, hit us. Um, It felt arbitrary. It felt cruel. Um, There were so many mysteries along with it. And so writing this story of a woman with cancer because the grandma, Lana, who's a very outrageous, tough woman, you know, she um, right in the beginning of the story um, gets cancer and has to leave her high-flying life in Los Angeles to go live with her daughter and granddaughter in their dumpy cottage by this um, marine preserve um, up in Monterey Bay. And, you know, she's grappling with this dramatic loss of power, loss of agency, and the way she finds her path to healing and love and strength again is through solving this murder mystery. And so um, these are not professional sleuths, you know, they, um, you know, the main tag team is this Grandma with cancer and this adventurous teenage kayaker um and then you have the mom in between trying to keep them safe and um trying to support them all as they come to resolution as a family and also as amateur detectives.
0: I'm sure you've heard this from other readers, but like I love Lana and I wish I wish you were my grandma, and I also wish I had an ounce of like the chutzpah that she has to you know. Put on her wig, put on her best Chanel suit, her Gucci heels, get the makeup on and go out and start asking tough questions. And I love in this book how she's that gritty, tough old lady and 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 the cops know that she's being a nosy body, but they're kind of like, all right, just don't make us come and get you out of trouble. Like, ask your questions, but really leave us
1: alone. And of course, she does make them get her out of trouble sometimes. But yeah, you know, I... Um... I have been struck by so many older women who I know who talk about feeling invisible at a certain stage. And I wanted to write this character who was resisting that with all of her might. And I think also since I was writing this book while my own mom was going through cancer, I wanted to write this kind of superhero character so that while my mom was getting pushed around by doctors, I wanted to write Lana as somebody who pushed the doctors around, you know, and when my mom was stuck in bed. I wanted Lana to leap out of bed and go try and solve the crime. Um in a lot of ways I wrote Lana with great admiration and homage to my own mom who is this tough LA Jewish businesswoman although my mom is much nicer than Lana as she always <laughs> wants me to make sure that people know. Um and um but I think that you know Lana was the kind of superhero we needed in our life at that time and I think that um, she is just a blast to write and um, a blast to, to follow as she charges her way through this small town.
0: You brought up uh, older women or just women in general talking about feeling invisible. And I actually have that written down in my notes because you have a lot of strong female characters. It's not just this core three of Lana, Beth, her daughter, and her granddaughter, Jack. You also have a female detective. Mm-hmm. Um I love the 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 woman in the nursing home who dresses in like the strapless mermaid ball gowns and yes, organizes like this little like covert operation in the mailroom. I think she's great, but it, it's this whole thing. Like I love this idea of you know every woman, regardless of your station, your job, your power, your money, struggles with being seen,
1: mm.
0: whether that's among their peers or or just in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's sort of one of the things that all kinds of marginalized people deal with is there's the way you see yourself, but there's also the messages and filters through which the world sees you. And especially, you know, for the detective Teresa Ramirez, who is a Latino woman from Salinas, or for the granddaughter Jack, who is a half Filipino um, teenager. You know, I think that I also was interested in some of the intersections of gender with race, with age, with class, as you're talking about. And as you're absolutely saying, you know, I was very interested in exploring this idea of what does it mean to be a strong woman? And what are the many different ways you can be strong? Because I think that a lot of the characters in this book, they exhibit strength in different ways, and they have certain judgments or expectations of each other. And um, one of my favorite team ups in the book is Lana with this detective, this young detective, Teresa Ramirez, and both of them are trying to be seen as credible investigators in this story. They're both driving each other nuts in their own ways. Um, And, you know, a a lot of the book is about strong women learning to respect and understand and see each other um, for their strengths and their approaches to being strong in a man's world that might be different.
0: Now, we can't talk too much about the murder itself because we'd give too much away. But was that your idea with how it how it all happened and went down? Was (laughs) that your mom? Was it the two of you going back and forth? Like where the where did this idea for the particular murder come from?
1: Yeah. um, You know, unsurprisingly, I started and we my mom and I started so much focused on the three women in this family. And so we really spent a lot of our attention and energy on these women and their dynamic and their relationship. And then we were looking around for who should we kill? Who should the (laughs) killer be? Um, How do we want this to work? And yeah, you know, one of the biggest inspirations I had in writing this and particularly on the murder mystery is this incredible um, author, Attica Locke, who has written really beautiful literary mysteries that mostly take place in Texas um, with um, African-American and black families. And they all deal with real estate. Um, and she's just given some beautiful talks about how land politics influence her writing as a crime author. And for me, you know, living in coastal California, land is the ultimate source of money, of power, of conflict in California, you know, for hundreds of years. Crimes have been committed, wars have been fought, arguments, wills, estates. And so I was really and also conservation, you know, and so as somebody who lives in the Monterey Bay, as somebody who lives in nature, I was really excited about the opportunity to position the murder mystery portion of this around some of these questions about land. And in a very general way, with no spoilers to say, you know, when a very big piece of land becomes available, What are the wars fought over that land? What are the different claims made? Um, Because I feel like when you have hundreds of acres or thousands of acres on the coast of California, there are so many motives for murder there. And I really was interested in exploring some of these questions about Who does this land belong to? Um, What do we owe to the wildlife? What do we owe to each other? What do we owe to the people who were here before? Um, And wanted to explore that in the murder mystery portion of this book. I also just wanted to set it in a place that was very atmospheric and Elkhorn Slough, where where the murders take place, where the story takes place, Is both an incredibly beautiful marine preserve. You know, it's one of the top 10 wildlife viewing places in North America. Um, And at the same time, it's very spooky. You know, there's always this mist and fog hanging over it. There are these, you know, old train tracks and dairies and falling down shacks. And so I love it as a place that both inspires me with its beauty and is sort of on the rough edge of the natural and the industrial world so i i have to tell you until i
0: read this book i didn't i didn't know what a slew was actually i didn't i didn't know how to say it until you said it a, a little yep, bit earlier yep. um so for this city girl th- and and anybody else who's out there like me is like slew what's a slew
1: what is a slew what defines what a slew is that's a good question, and I'm sure I'll get this a little bit wrong, but um, it's it's a it's a wetland basically, um, a tidal wetland. Um, it also sometimes it's called an estuary. So usually, a slough um, is where a big body of water. In the case of Elkhorn Slough, it's um, the Pacific Ocean. In other places, it might be a big river or a lake sort of um, turns into a mosaic of marshy wetland, um, you know, trailing off creeks. Anytime you've ever, you know, paddled too far and ended up in some very winding, curly (laughs) clues, uh, you might be in a slough. Um, And so in the case of Elkhorn Slough, you know, it's a place where there are otters and sea lions and a lot of marine life coming in from the ocean, but there also are incredible egrets and pelicans and so many different um, bird species there as well. So in the case of Elkhorn Slough, again, you know, this idea of being at the border, the border of the ocean and farmland, the border of, you know, an industrial marina and then this national marine preserve. I feel like anywhere you're on the border of two places, you are in a place that is very ripe for conflict um, and therefore maybe for murder. I don't
0: know if you're familiar with the New York City area, but as you are describing that, I'm thinking of like... The, the marshland wetlands that are around Kennedy Airport. Mm. Like that's that's what I'm thinking of. You've got the airport right there, but then you've got these yes. wetlands where they're always trying to like the birds take off from and they're trying to protect things. So I think if, if there's anybody who's listening who's in my neck <laughs> of the woods, I, th- I, I think that's kind of the direction we're, <laughs> that we're heading in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's such an interesting point that I feel like Boston has that too by Logan Airport. And um, I don't know if these things are technically slews, but again, like, What a wild thing to have these wild places up against an airport. And I feel like, again, you know, as you said that, I'm like, ooh, these these should be places where murders happen. (laughs) But only in in, real life, they probably do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So you yourself have worn many career hats. Uh, Just reading from from your author's biography, NASA engineer, poet, game designer, museum director, nonprofit founder. You can add debut novelist now to your list. So what, what's next? Are you going to try something else? <laughs> or maybe you'll write another book?
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, I like to say this is my first novel, but about my fifth career. <laughs> I'm somebody who's just really curious about different things. And I love to go deep on something with great passion. But I feel like life's too short, for me at least, to do only one thing. Um, But there's no question that I am entering the novelist stage of my life. Um, And I'm just so thrilled and and just feel so grateful and lucky that readers are responding to Mother Daughter Murder Night And it means that it's really possible and viable for me to continue to write novels. So I don't know that I'll be doing this forever, but certainly I am loving, um, and this Mm -hmm. is my favorite part of any new pursuit, is the time when you are learning so much and growing so much and challenging yourself so much. And so, you know, I am excited about the new novels that I'm working on. And I hope that, you know, readers will allow me to write many novels um, in the years to come.
0: So just like a pivot question just because you you've yeah. changed tracks so many times. If there's anybody who's listening, who's thinking I really want to do this but I'm not sure I should. <laughs> what's your advice to somebody who's kind of at at that pivot point in their lives?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's I I'm somebody who um loves letting go and has made a practice of that as much as I love the starting up part. So I would say a couple things. First is that Often the time at which you are most excited about the new thing um, is also a time of great terror and insecurity. And I think that you need to give yourself grace and permission to deal with the messiness of the letting go of the shame you might feel. You know, look, when I started writing this book, I had been a nonprofit CEO who quit my job to make milkshakes for my mom and make up a story sitting on her bed thinking, what am I doing? Like, how am I going to make money? What is this for? And um, I had to give myself permission to say, this is what is right for right now. And there are like beautiful things in the letting go part. I'll also say that, you know, my husband and I are both very creative and entrepreneurial. We've been together for 20 years and we have had sort of a deal for that whole time that our goal is to live fully and well on one salary. And we have traded off about five times who the person with that salary is. So, you know, there was a time where he wanted to start a new business and I was the person with the job. Um, there was a time when, you know, I was trying to start a new organization and he was the person with the job. When we had a baby, you know, I had the job and he stayed home. And so we have chosen um, as um, part of our relationship to say we are prioritizing the ability to say goodbye to things that aren't working and to say yes to things that we don't know if they'll work yet. Um, And I feel so grateful and so privileged that we're able to do that. But I also know that it's a deliberate choice we made. So I think that making those deliberate choices for yourself and for your family and giving yourself the grace um, to deal with the messy And ugly and hard parts of the goodbye before you can fully say hello, or as part of that saying hello to something new. I have found that to be really powerful. Also note, you know, since we're talking on a podcast, there is a podcast called The Pathless Path um, by this guy, Paul Millard, who is um, fascinated by people who make these kinds of shifts or who get off of a very established career ramp and go somewhere else. And um, I recommend it if you're curious about that. If you're somebody who's thinking about creative life, I recommend the podcast Magic Lessons, which doesn't exist anymore. But Elizabeth Gilbert created it as a companion to her book, Big Magic. And it was a huge inspiration to me um, when I was in the early days of writing Mother, Daughter, Murder Night.
0: Well, I think that's all great advice and also lots of great material. Like if you're bored,
1: (laughs) like you just
0: you just set us up for a few months in terms of listening (laughs) and reading material. Um, I personally, I can't wait to see what's next for you because it's just fascinating to me. In the meantime, people
1: can pick up Mother Daughter Murder Night. Nina Simon, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Lisa. It's so my pleasure. And because I'm a debut novelist, I love hearing from readers. Um, you will never um, make me feel annoyed if you reach out and tell me how you, well, maybe if you tell me you hated the book, but if you are, if you are enjoying the book or it's connecting or resonating for you, I hope you'll reach out. I'm online at nina com and on all the social media platforms at Nina K. Simon.
0: And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Okay, time for a little word association game. If I say spies and martinis, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I bet you're thinking Bond, James Bond. Well, in this case of what's next, you'd be wrong. Coming up next time, I'll chat with international best-selling author Tess Gerritsen about her new series featuring a group of retired spies trying to live out their lives quietly on the coast of Maine. You'll have to tune in to find out what the martinis have to do with it. Until then, spy on us on Twitter and Instagram at Lisa T. Books. Keep turning those pages.